0: And welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the University of Johannesburg uh, Center for African Foreign Policy and Diplomacy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, here we are, Cobus, back again at a topic that just won't leave us alone. Uh, it is, it is the question of ivory. And it's, believe it or not, it's actually a topic that we really don't want to keep coming back to because there are so many interesting topics. In the China Africa relationship, but it kind of keeps being forced onto the radar, and and in part because over on our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash China Africa Project, we've kind of encountered a new phase in our development. In Cobus, it kind of hit us, you know, right around the hundred thousand mark, when the population of our page really expanded, and I've noticed that. There's just a much more vocal community out there really concerned in talking about ivory. This community largely comes from the West. You don't hear the Chinese and African voices quite as prominent. Um, and it's quite it sparked uh, some rather intense conversations going on over the page.
1: Yeah, like how when it it, it struck us was um, we I posted a uh, an op-ed that that appeared in China Daily, um, which argued that the China Africa economic relationship is the most beneficial that Africa's ever experienced with the most beneficial relationship Africa's ever experienced with the outside world, um, and you know kind of making the point that while all these you know obviously Western colonialism was an unending nightmare, um, and you know kind of post post Colonial kind of Western institutions like the World Bank and the IMF have imposed lots of different, um, you know, kind of conditions on African development frequently, which has kept Africa back. And uh, compared to that, China is much better. Um, you know, short op-ed um, and then in in relay, you know, kind of in comment on that, the the discussion took a very sharp turn into yes, but what about the elephants? Um, so this was, you know, the, and that that kind of led to a very heated discussion between Africans and Americans, Europeans, on you know, kind of whether whether uh, you know, kind of uh, Westerners care more for African people than they they do for elephants. You know, kind of which is a, a point that that comes up in African discourse. About, about rhino and, Afri- uh, you know, rhinos and elephants generally, frequently.
0: Well, it's, it, it always reminds me of why in Europe in particular, but also in the United States, that homeless people will have uh, animals and pets with them, dogs and cats. Uh, and the idea is that, well, you know, your average middle class or upper class person will, will, will give a little money to a street person if they've got a cute dog. And they'll say, oh, the poor dog. And, and you know, ignoring the fact that there's a human being that's sitting out in the cold. And I think this is an interesting comparison because what a lot of Africans have complained about is the fact that, as you said, that people will get very, very passionate about elephants and rhinos, deservedly so. I I take nothing away from that. But at the end of the day, we'll also not pay attention to some of the more human social problems that are there. So today on the page – Uh, You know, I posted an article about Nigeria's uh, economy uh, going—you know—trade between China and Nigeria going up from two billion, you know, eleven years ago to thirteen billion. And Andrew Kern, uh, a user, he—I think he's American, actually—he said trade is inversely proportional to elephant deaths for ivory to supply the demand from China. And that's where I got a little frustrated because. Again, if everything's going to come back to ivory, one of the things I th- I, I think might happen is you, it, it runs the risk of turning people off. And at the end of the day, to solve the ivory issue is one that requires consensus. It requires cooperation. It requires community building. It's a political. Solution at the end of the day. And in politics, as we know, perception is everything. So I fear that if Westerners are predominantly whites, are sitting and yelling at everybody, then both the Chinese and Africans will sit back and just kind of go into defensive crouch and say, you know, STFU. That's one of the concerns. However, I also want to bring your attention to really some incredibly intelligent kind of retorts to this by uh, a South African by the name of Jillian uh, Waldeck, who comes back and, and, and very articulately said, uh, our tone has been through a process of shock, horror, sorrow, desperation, and pleading to arrive us at this point. Community awareness is our only hope with corrupt officials lining their pockets. We want dialogue, and we do not want to put all the blame on China. I am always delighted to slate the colonials for their barbaric trophy-hunting practices and their sense of ownership. Right now, we have an alliance with our government and these colonial descendants pushing for trade, so the politics on face value is somewhat muddled. And I think that was interesting, and, Cobus, that's going to lead us into our conversation today, which we're going to talk about You know, an idea that came forward by – Um, let's see, his name is uh, Michael Kachanja, and I've apologize to Michael if I am actually getting this wrong. And he is the executive director of the East African Wildlife Society. Kobus, he came out and, and really shifted the blame and everybody focuses on China. China, 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 when it comes to ivory. And he said Kenya's got its own problems when it comes to this. What did he say?
1: He, he was, you know, this piece was really interesting and he kind of, he, because he's also he's an insider in East African conservation circles. So he really knows how this works. And he Made a long list of all of the different institutional problems in Kenya that makes that that makes it easier for for poaching to explode um, and it, it includes things like uh, the 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 Kenyan Wildlife Service refusing to share data because there are all kinds of institutional hostilities between them and other kind of conservation, you know, kind of agencies in, in East Africa. Um, issues with, uh, you know, kind of that, um, the way that, that poaching is designated as, you know, kind of the, the kinds of crimes that it's, that the way that it's punished and the way that it's designated. And, you know, a lot, a lot of real kind of bureaucratic nitty-gritty issues that actually makes it much easier to get away with smuggling ivory than it should be.
0: Yeah, and so let me go through the, the five key points that he brought up and that you touched on. Uh, point number one that Kachanga brought up was reluctance to, to, for the KWS, which is the Kenyan Wildlife Service, to form private sector and civil society partnerships. So they basically are an island to themselves. Uh, And that's very important to work with community groups who are actually out uh, in the bush. It's also very important to work with the tourism sector as well, but they don't do that. No formalized enforcement agency that collaborates with the KWS. I thought that was very interesting. So they do their own enforcement, but that may not be enough. The Kenya Forest Service avoids conflict with other agencies. Uh, And that's something that he says is a problem. Ability to discuss and partner with local communities in anti-poaching is inadequate. I mean he came out and said that. I thought that was very interesting because he's picking a fight with some uh, some pretty powerful community groups there. And this was, I thought, the most interesting. He said that uh, the KWS, the Kenyan Wildlife Service, needs to have tighter controls of Kenyan airways and as well as port controls out of Mombasa. Because working with the airlines, the ports and whatnot, uh, where a lot of the trafficking actually takes place would actually combat uh, trafficking and and, and poaching ultimately at the end of the day. What I find so interesting about this piece was when everybody says, you know, shut down the factories in China, sure, that's one thing. But the problem is so much more complex, as as Kachanga pointed out. Did you – were you surprised when he kind of went into such detail and really, really picked on very powerful constituencies within the Kenyan bureaucracy as saying they are partially responsible for this tragedy and in some ways putting a spotlight on them and taking it off of China.
1: A little bit, yeah. You know, it's not the first time that I've heard that. But, yeah, I was, I was um, surprised at, at his level of specificity. Um, and I think it's very valuable um, because, obviously, it's not, you know, there's this kind of trade isn't happening in, in a vacuum. Um, and it's it's facilitated by certain people, and it's facilitated by, by the way that institutions are set up. So we've, we've pointed out in the past that, you know, there was these crazy situations where someone would be caught with 100 kilos of ivory and then, you know... You know, fined like two hundred dollars, um, and you know it, it. It fits into this, like the 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 kind of institutions and the the tools for for prosecuting these people aren't really set up yet. Um, and at the same time, I think um, part of it has to do with the way that you know it it, it feeds into. Um, Or let me say, you know, kind of you see the limits of of the discourse as it stands at the moment, you know, kind of the the discourse, if if you have the discourse driven by, by white liberals in Brooklyn and London and so on. All talking about the tragedy of the slaughter, like how terrible this, the, the tragic slaughter of these, you know, magnificent animals. You, you're getting nowhere with that discourse. Like you need the, the 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 crime needs to be shifted into a different different kind of mental category, and that category is that this is economic sabotage. Um, you know, there's a lot of money to be made with this, you know, with, with the tourism in showing off these animals, and you know, kind of killing them is is sabotaging the entire country, the entire country of Kenya or South Africa. I think that makes much more sense and it's much easier to to then kind of muster all of these resources behind you when you're fighting economic sabotage than when you're fighting the tragedy of magnificent animals being slaughtered. You're not going to... But the white liberal Brooklynite really
0: can't help him or herself. I mean, it is really... And this is part of the legacy of Africa uh, for a long time, which is, you know, whether it was starving babies or now it's killing of elephants, which is a vast oversimplification of the issue. They've made China to be the boogeyman China deserves the, the, the title of asshole on this I mean there's no doubt I mean I'm not defending what the Chinese are doing at all The problem is I agree with you Cobus, That the solution is not simply vilifying China um, Do you know I found out the other day Do you know what the second largest uh, What country is the second largest importer of illegal ivory? Thailand? No I, I don't know if I yeah. can trust the source which, which... The United States Um, That was, you know, and I read that, and it it doesn't actually surprise me in some respects. First of all, there's huge Asian populations in the United States. Secondly, the United States has a massive population of its own. I'm going to go ahead and confirm that, but I read that a couple days ago, and I kind of went, oh? Um, It doesn't surprise me. There's a big market for these things. Uh, But it does kind of go to show that pressure needs to be put all around. China is not the only consumer of this. It is by far the largest. It is driving the the poaching. There's no doubt about it. Um, But again, as We've talked about and Jeffrey Gettleman of the New York Times has reported on this extensively in 2012 that the poaching business is organized crime. It is the military's corrupt, uh, corrupt units within the military. Uh, it is uh, lots of different elements within African society that are doing it. And I think when Gachanga came out and actually pointed out the fact that a lot of this is also getting by – with the fact that there is bureaucratic disorganization that's also letting this happen well that needs to be pressure have some pressure put onto it so there is a lot of blame that goes around for this and i you know just vilifying the chinese simply won't solve the problem
1: I wonder if it's a similar situation to what you saw with Kony 2012, you know, kind of where you need, you know, kind of in order to sell the message to a wide audience, you need to kind of make to simplify it. You need to get a boogeyman. You need to, to kind of iron out all of these complexities in African society that people don't want to deal with or don't know about, don't know in well enough to deal with. Um, and that in the process, you, you just get this incredible amount of, of kind of passionate discourse that actually goes nowhere and helps no one.
0: Well, I've noticed that, you know, I covered Africa for a little bit as a journalist and then I was living there as a, you know, in a professional capacity. And, and I found that there, there's what I call these embedded narratives. Uh, and the, these embedded narratives are the idea that uh, this is what news editors and what the population at large in, in many parts of the West for the most part, but now increasingly here in Asia as well, have this, have this vision of Africa. And one of the embedded narratives, of course, is, you know, rape and violence and torture and just horrific things. And One is, of course, the starving baby, which we've seen—the iconic picture in the Time magazine photo from Somalia and Ethiopia. The other, of course, is you know wildlife, the jungle, the Lion King, and and when something hits one of those embedded narratives as squarely as what's going on right now with elephants, boy, it resonates. It resonates very, very loud, and and this is getting attention. And and what I've said is the solution here for the Chinese: the Chinese will not pay attention. They will not pay attention. I apologize to our listeners who have heard this before because I've said this over and over again. They, will, they do not respond to being yelled at. They have not responded on human rights. They have not responded on questions of, you know, the South China Sea and the East China Sea disputes. So yelling at them is not going to solve the problem. What will make them respond is when there are pragmatic considerations that come under you know, under attack. So, Cobus, would you believe that... The Chinese respond if – you know we talked about in our last show this idea of different governments in East Africa, for example, kind of coming together. And one of the ways that they might be able to come together is to say, listen, you have to do something about the ivory. And if you don't do something about the ivory, you cannot come and invest here. There are consequences to be paid for your policies at home that directly affect our wildlife. And I tend to think that's something they would listen to
1: yeah no i agree with you i think the problem is that is is to get the african governments in that position where they actually say that because you know kind of one of the issues with ivory is 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 that it's it's the chinese government versus chinese elites you know ivory carving and ivory consumption is an elite thing in africa in china and for that reason that you know the chinese government doesn't want to anger the elites if they don't have to um so that that you know kind of that that implies a certain amount of resistance i think there's exactly the same problem in africa because you know Kind of the people who are making money out of this issue aren't the people who are actually doing the poaching. They, the 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 customs agents and the, the airline people and you know the people who turn a blind eye for a payment to this to this trade, um, and they are notoriously the hardest people to you know kind of to, to get kind of control of in africa that's they they you know kind of that kind of small grain institutionalized corruption is one of the difficult the, the 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 highest hurdles to african development as a whole so in order to to kind of to get those people in line, and to, you know, kind of, I'm not exactly sure what African governments should do to, to, to you know, kind of, to do it. Um, but you know, kind of, I, I think that they would be the people you need to target.
0: Well, I mean, it's like any environmental issue. The, you know, the animals do not respect national boundaries. This has to be a regional, if not a continental. I doubt it'll be continental because. Really, that's too difficult. But if nothing else, a regional issue, particularly in East and Southern Africa, where they, you know, where they basically say enough is enough. And, and one of the interesting points that came up, and I forget the article that it was brought up on, is to really turn the Chinese on themselves. The Chinese go to incredible efforts to protect their own wildlife, particularly their own wild elephant population, ironically. And to kind of turn this and make this a top-tier issue for the Chinese to say enough you do you protect your elephants, so you have to respect ours. And I just don't think that the Michael Sados are doing that. I don't think that you know Kenyatta, you know Ururu Kenyatta is putting that at the top of the agenda. He did bring it up on his latest trip to Beijing, but they've got to put this as a top tier issue. Let's go back now to the uh, to Gachanga uh, piece. Um, and for those of you looking for the piece, we found it, uh, it's on the Kenyan Star has it, but we found it over on allafrica.com. And you can look for it uh, Kenya, time for action, not words on poaching. And, and he kind of reiterates what we've been saying, and I don't know if we were you know, influenced by him or vice versa. Well, he wasn't influenced by us. I don't want to flatter ourselves here. Uh, But poaching is a global issue, he writes, albeit complicated by national boundaries, murky middlemen, and illegal international trade. But there is still a need to think in terms of national boundaries. Explore what is hindering our efforts to curb this escalation and devise ways of reversing the situation. So I thought that was a very nice summation of, of kind of the challenge that stands before us. When you see the challenge that he has laid out and from what you know about Kenya and even in South Africa where obviously poaching is an issue as well, do you think these national governments have what it takes to to implement the kinds of reforms that Kachanga is actually suggesting?
1: Um, I think they do have what it takes. I don't think they're necessarily willing um, because I think there's people with – you know there are vested interests high up in these governments that that are ma you know who people who are making a lot of money out of poaching um, and I think that that makes it very hard i think in africa um in the case of south africa what you what you find is that um frequently you know, kind of conservation isn't necessarily only run by the state in South Africa. South Africa has a lot of private game farms and game reserves as well. Um, and for those people, these these, these um, animals are majestic, etc., etc. But they're also incredibly expensive. So, because they need to be, you know, kind of South African, the South African environment is, is settled to the extent that you don't have large kind of hinterlands where animals roam free, um, these animals need to be purchased and then cared for. Um, so, you know, kind of, you're talking about a rhino, is thousands and thousands of dollars to buy. I mean, it's incredibly expensive. So, um, so they, they get looked after as economic investments. Um, and for that reason, these, some of these private game reserves hire security to protect their investments the same way that they would with trucks. Um, and, you know, that might be one, one model, you know, kind of that, that pushes it a little bit out of this kind of bankrupt and corrupt state towards the private sector. That might help. Um, you know, kind I, c- of, I can but see you... I, I say it, I don't, I don't I, see it as a solution. No, and I can see the
0: outrage, you know, just fuming on our Facebook fans, you know, who are... You know, just you know, just the fact that this would be something that was the sole province of the private sector, and we're basically looking at you know elephants and rhinos now as a you know the same way we look at pandas for the most part, which are just in museums. And the panda and I think, population I think in that's
1: China that's almost where we are. That's where we I are, think and that, that's that where that we're is going. That's almost a reality already. Um, yeah, you know, in, kind of like I was um, I, this this week. I was at a um, you know I, I happen to have been at a at a, at a wildlife reserve um, as part of a you know an, an academic. Trip and um, the they had a rhino um, and that rhino we actually saw the rhino and the rhino is scary I mean it's massive as size of a car um, and it um, you know kind of it is it, itself a poaching survivor like its its herd was killed in another wildlife preserve it still has a bullet in its shoulder that they can't remove because the rhino is so dangerous they dehorned it in order to keep it safe and moved it to a different different preserve where it now lives as a massive attraction. You know, so it's it's this weird mix of commodity and you know, kind of um, like certain people have the privilege to see it, and certain people get get emotionally moved by it, while other people are indifferent to it. It's yeah, it, it just becomes more and more complicated and, and frustrating as as a thing you talk about in a way.
0: Yeah, and it's boy, it is emotional, and, and and there's no better place to see the emotions on display than over on our Facebook page at Facebook.com/slash China Africa Project. One of the things that both Kobus and I are trying to do. Do in this debate is at least present some of the other sides of the story. Uh, we don't actually take a point of view. We're not. I mean, clearly, we're opposed to, to the killing, and you can see that in our comments. But I think one of the other things that we're both opposed to, and Cobus, correct me if I'm wrong here, is the oversimplification of the issue. And and to say that you know again, shutting the factories will actually stop the poaching and stop the killing. It won't. It'll simply move it underground. And I resent. The oversimplification of that, and that's what annoys me more than anything. And so, when you see me kind of get into these discussions on Facebook, it's to kind of reflect a lot of what we're seeing in the Michael Kajanga article: is the complexity of it, and understanding and respecting the the, the, the complexity of it. Because only then will we come up with the appropriate solution. The problem is, though, is time is running out. The pace of killing is going up so fast right now that I have my doubts as to whether or not the types of domestic reforms that people like. Michael Kajanga are recommending will actually be implemented because also, as Cobus pointed out, a lot of people are profiting from this, and they're not just Chinese. There are a lot of Africans, and uh, you know what? Also, Americans who are profiting from this—you know—what was it that uh, you know a couple it was about a month or two ago an American diplomat was caught leaving Nairobi with some with some ivory uh, in in the suitcase. So, so that's happening. And one, yeah, time, and he
1: got, a, he got a slap on the wrist. I mean, he got something like a two hundred and fifty dollars fine.
0: He got some, yeah. Crazy. I mean, and
1: and that's part of the problem too. Here's the other thing I think that would wake
0: the Chinese up, which is again, you know, fifty year jail sentences for even smuggling a little bit of it. As you you pointed this out, the same way that here in Southeast Asia, that if you're caught. Smuggling even a gram of heroin. Guess what? That's it for you. You're done. You know, possibly the death penalty, but definitely life in jail. Um, just one little kind of final footnote on this: Chen uh, Biamei, a name you may not be familiar with, but she is the 30 year old Chinese woman who was arrested uh, in Nairobi and given a two year seven month uh, jail sentence, which was considered to be a very strong jail sentence. I didn't think it was that much, but nonetheless, she, uh, you know, everybody else kind of thought that was a great little thing. She uh, pleaded for a fine in lieu of, of, of her jail term, and uh, the court, uh, Justice uh, Chode in uh, Nairobi, you'll be happy to hear, turned down that request. So she is actually now in a Nairobi jail, hopefully thinking about her, uh, her crime. I, I doubt it, but that's it for now. So, Copas, uh, give me your, your final thoughts on this uh, very emotional, complicated
1: topic. You know, one of the issues I think one of the really hard issues um, about this this whole debate is that um, when you when you when you see the kind of levels of outrage that that develop among frequently westerners actually about about this issue, the kind of emotionalism of it, I feel the need that. I think it's, it's necessary for them to also interrogate their own emotion a little bit. Um, I think there's a certain amount of pleasure taken in outrage. You know, kind of generally. I think that the internet has taught us that, that people like to be outraged, um, and you know, kind of in the some of the discourse that have shown up on, in some of the some of the comments on our Facebook page g- reminded me a lot. You know, kind of, gave me the feeling that that some of this outrage is used as a cover for actual racism, Um, because you know, you there are certain kind of um, perceptions of both Africa and China that 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 get coded into this this kind of like you know boiling outrage and you know kind of moral high moral outrage about about the majestic elephants that really reach back to nineteenth century perceptions of Africa as a big hinterland where. You know, no humans actually live, and China as this kind of thousand-year-old, million-year-old society of refined torture and decadence. You know, kind of both of those extremely racist perceptions get woven into this kind of discourse. But but you know, kind of frequently people people uh, feel that because they're angry about elephants and because they're, they're defending these these kind of defenceless animals you know kind of they, they actually get a free pass I, I think I think there's a lot of problematic issues within this discourse and that's one of the reasons why I think Africans and Chinese get so riled up by it um, you know and, and why it so quickly devolves into a kind of a back and forth about who is really guilty for colonialism you know kind of because it, it's, it is a discourse that goes back to colonialism.
0: Yeah and, and one other very interesting point that was brought up uh, in, in the many of discussions that we've had is that poaching is actually not the greatest threat where at least again this comes from a commentator on Facebook, so I don't know how far we can trust it, but at least makes sense. That pouching is not necessarily the gravest threat to, to wildlife in Africa. It's urbanization. It's the lack of uh, you know it's the it's the increasing, you know, population of humans into what were once wild habitats. So the lack of of wild space and habitat for animals is in some ways a greater threat. And and what I find interesting as well is you know, what came up this is this overlaps with a um, a conversation on the environment as a whole, and one of the points that I brought up uh, you know to in response to a different comment was how the chinese don 't respect the environmental degradation that they 're causing in africa and i said it 's ironic because you know do Africans respect the environmental degradation that 's happening in China? well, of course not for the most part because most of us don 't understand what 's happening on the other side of the world, but in so many ways, these two con- these two regions are linked because the the natural resources that are extracted out of Africa then get sent to China to be turned into finished goods that are causing just horrific environmental consequences there as well, where people are choking 10 of the top 20 rivers that are most polluted in the world are in China. And so in some ways... There's more that these two regions have in common than they do have apart, and you know, obviously on poaching it's a different issue, but in terms of environmental degradation and the impact, um, I don't think a lot of Westerners appreciate this. And my frustration, Cobus, where where people, whether with the kind of the the stereotypical liberal Brooklynite or San Franciscan, um, is that there is a lack of appreciation for the the carbon footprint that the average american uh, and the average european for the most part americans worse than europe is putting out and there isn't that humility in the discussion that says that your average refrigerator, just the refrigerator of an American, uh, takes up more electricity than most families in the developing world. So a little humility on all sides might actually help quite a bit, I think, get this conversation going. Kobus, I think you and I are going to be squarely in the bullseye of about you know 6,000 or 10,000 of our <laughs> Facebook followers. So if we see a big drop in our population, we'll know why, what's going on. So, But it is an emotional issue. I, I don't think either one of us is attempting to denigrate the emotional side of it, but again, to come out and say that it's a lot more complicated than it is. Maybe you and I should stop before we get in more trouble.
1: Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: well, listen, that'll do it for this edition. This whole week we've talked about kind of different ideas that are coursing through the China-Africa relationship. Clearly environmentalism, clearly the the the, the survival of rhinos and elephants that hangs in the balance is one of the defining themes of this relationship. Uh, and one that is, I think, that we're going to be back, you know, sooner than later to, to, talk, to talk about. But we would love to hear what you have to say. Please share your thoughts with us. Uh, good, bad, and ugly over on our Facebook 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 page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. But Facebook's not the only place where we're active. Cobus, where can they find you if they also want to reach you elsewhere on the web?
1: I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm over
0: at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. Uh, and the best way to stay on top of what we're doing is, of course, to follow us on all of these different outlets. We're on Weibo at weibo.com slash Zhongfei Xiangmu. For those of you who speak Chinese, that's China Africa Project. Uh, but the best way to follow our podcast is over on iTunes, or you can find us on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on the BlackBerry Network. And I also want to give a shout out to uh, the China Africa News newsletter. It's Henry Hall's weekly newsletter out of London. Uh, it's a fantastic way to kind of get the top headlines every week. So Maybe you don't want to follow kind of the neurotic level that Cobus and I are kind of cranking them out, but just want a summary once a week. Uh, Henry's email is really a great, great solution for that, and I highly, highly recommend it. Just go to ChinaAfricaNews.com and then put your email address in for a sign-up, and he'll go ahead and curate uh, a good 10 or 15 articles for you, including our very own podcast. So that'll do it for this edition. We'll be back next week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much. Much for listening.